By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Those are verses 6 to 9 of Psalm 33, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, June the 25th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at uh, the book of Numbers, um, chapter 20, verses 14 to 29. We're still in Matthew's Gospel and in the book of Romans. In Matthew's Gospel, we're in chapter 22, the 21, sorry, first 11 verses, and in Romans, the sixth chapter, verses 1 to 11 there as well. So remember yesterday we, we had to deal with Moses being um, told that he couldn't enter the land because after the death of Miriam, he, the people grumbled about water and he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock and called them rebels. And so he's no longer allowed to, to lead them into the land. Somebody else has to do that and complete that work because he, he sinned. <laughs> he didn't obey the voice of the Lord. He did what he wanted to do because of his grief, I believe. Um, but but he, nonetheless... You know, the thing is, under pressure, you have to continue to do the, what God says. And, and what we see in Jesus on the cross is the most extreme pressure you could ever put on another human being. And he didn't crack under the pressure. Instead, at the end, instead of doing what Moses did, which is referring to these people as rebels, Jesus prayed for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's, it's a difficult thing to do that. It, it's, it's so difficult that only one has ever done it. But under the most extreme pressure anybody could ever face, Jesus passed all the tests, beginning to end. Here now, they're moving on. So he sends, Moses sends messengers from Kadesh, where they were in the wilderness, to the king of Edom. Now remember who Edom is. Edom is the uh, nation, but they are the uh, descendants of Esau, who was Jacob slash Israel's brother. So Esau slash Edom. Both those names apply to him in the same way that Jacob and Israel are the same person. So here, these are the descendants of, of Edom. So it's, it's part of the same family, going back for a long time, obviously. So Moses addresses the king this way, Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard to drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right or the left until we have passed through your territory. In other words, Moses is just asking for safe passage. He says, we're not going to take anything from you. We're not going to go through field or vineyard. And, and the reason you wouldn't want to do that is twofold, right? It's, you don't want things destroyed, but at the same time, you don't want anybody sampling as you go along. So he says, we're going to stay on the highway. We're going to stay there, and we're going to pass through there. We're, we're not going to take anything from you. And he felt the need, since they were no longer going to be in the wilderness for this time, that he felt the need to ask for safe passage as they went through. And Edom said to him, this is the king speaking, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. You know, the fear of the people, it's, it's pretty shocking, except for the fact they've been wandering for a while now, and, and so he's emboldened. Now, there's certainly going to come times when God speaks against Edom. 
it's it's not going to go well for them. This is causing a permanent problem in the same way the Moabites caused a permanent problem by coming against them, same way they did with the Amalekites. All these people come against the people of Israel, and, and God decrees against them in every way. So they say, no, you can't come through. If you come in here, we're going to come out, and we're going to come get you. And the people of Israel said to him, we'll go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I'll pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. It's the safer way to go. To stay on the king's highway would be the safe way to go. Rather than staying in the wilderness, it would be, it, it's similar to when Jesus passes through Samaritan territory would be one way of looking at it in, in a kind of a different way. Safety being one thing in this instance and the other to pass through Samaria is the quickest way to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. But people didn't go that way. And then we see one Samaritan village tell them, no, you can't come through here on your way to Jerusalem. You can't stay because you're going to Jerusalem. And here it's the same way. So this brother, the, the descendants are saying to one another, no, you can't come through here. And it would be a safety reason, would be the reason they'd want to stay on the king's highway rather than being in the wilderness. Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. And this explains a later problem with Edom. So if you want to know what does God have against Edom, well, it refers back to this. Whenever you read Scripture, you'll see things, prophecies and things against God's Word speaking against the Edomites. This is why. Um, and so they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor, H-O-R. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. And it's an interesting choice of language there, to say the least. So what he's saying to Moses is, look, it's time for Aaron to die. He's not too long before this. He's lost his sister, and now he's going to lose his brother Aaron. And these would have been both older than Moses, um, and we know that for a fact because we know with Miriam because she's mentioned as being there when Moses is a baby. But with Aaron, we have to assume the same because he would have been subject to being having been thrown in the Nile, uh, just as Moses would have. So we can assume that he's older, and so he had already um, passed through that period. Of the, well, he— he was no longer under two, let's say, when that happened. And so here now he's going to lose not only his sister, but his brother who had been companions with him all this time in the wilderness. And then, but it's interesting, the choice of language that I'm talking about, he says, he, says, he can't pass, enter the land that I've given to the people of Israel because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. And that would have stung because remember what Moses said? He calls them rebels. And here God says, they weren't the only rebels there at Meribah. It was you two. Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, and bring them up to Mount Or, and strip Aaron of his garments and put, on, put them on Eliezer, his son, and Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Gathered to his people means to die. And gathered to his people would be in the afterlife. So he's, he's to be brought up there, and then it, what a horrible ceremony this would be for Moses to take the high priestly garments from Aaron and put them on his son Eliezer. So he did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Or in the sight of all the congregation, and Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain, and when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Now, if you remember, they, 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 did, they wept for Jacob for 40 days. 
And with Moses, they'll do the same. But but Aaron is such an important personage here. We're told that they wept for him for 30 days. We didn't see the same with Miriam. We see that they remained in the place where they were for some period of time. But here, Aaron, even though they challenged his authority on multiple occasions, um, they, they've recognized that he was God's chosen um, priest. And they don't have any choice at this point based on the budding of, of his staff. In the gospel... They're coming near. They're coming close. They're up to, they're draw near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. And so the boundaries of Jerusalem, I've mentioned this before, but during the, the pilgrim feasts like Passover and Yom Kippur, then the boundaries of Jerusalem were expanded to include the area around the Mount of Olives all the way out almost to Bethpage. And the the reason is, is is that that you had to be in the city limits of Jerusalem. Well, as the number of Jews increased, the ability to host them all within the city walls was was no longer even possible. So they had to extend the boundaries of what was considered Jerusalem during those pilgrim festivals so that everybody could be counted as fulfilling their scriptural obligation under the law, to be in Jerusalem. And so the city limits of Jerusalem had to be expanded beyond the walls of Jerusalem to include these places like the Mount of Olives. So when they come there, there would have been a large group of people already there, in addition to the group of people that we heard about yesterday that are coming with Jesus through Jericho. And we know before that he had fed several thousand people. So so we know there's a large crowd of people coming with Jesus, and all along the way, even after he fed all those people, they would have still picked up more people in Jericho and every town and village they passed through on the way up here to the Mount of Olives. And so they've they've picked up a lot more people, but then when they get to the Mount of Olives, there would have already been other people essentially camping there during the festival. And in preparation for the festival, those who had come early would be there. So now you're talking about thousands of people who were involved at this point. And so they come to that area, and then Jesus sent two disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, and that's probably Bethpage he's speaking about here. In Luke's gospel, he calls it Bethpage and Bethany. But here, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. In other words, Jesus knows. I mean, this is all prepared in advance. I mean, as far as God's concerned, I'm not saying Jesus had set it up uh, in, a, in an earthly way. So he, he says, you know, this is what's going to happen, so here's all you need to do. And they, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that would be Zechariah, that we're talking about here. It's Zechariah 7. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus says, find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So here what we're seeing is two things. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And now he didn't sit on both of them, obviously. Uh, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And, and that would have been it's exactly what you would do if there were a royal visitation. It's exactly how things were done in Roman times in that era and in this, this area. That they would have done this as a way of spreading a, a red carpet out before a royal personage. And so they do this same thing. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him, so the, the ones in front and the ones behind him, are shouting. And they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And Hosanna means, Lord, save us now. 
It's not just, Lord, save us. It's a, it's a present action that's being asked for. So they're saying, save us now. So they're hailing him as the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And so they believe that this is the Davidic messianic king that was promised that one from David's line would always sit on his throne. They believe him to be the, that messianic king that God had promised long before. And, and they are treating him as though he were a king. And Jesus himself is um, intentionally fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah by the way he enters. And in entering on a donkey rather than a horse, he's saying, I come in peace. And so it's a matter of, are you going to receive me as king and put me on the throne or not? There's not an implied threat behind it. It's literally the, a peaceful coming and it, and it could have happened it could have happened and when he entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying who is this and the crowd said this is the prophet jesus from nazareth of galilee and in one of the other gospels there's a more ominous note to that because after the what they what i think it's mark it's, it says that um the the pharisees are trying to tamp this thing down and so they change from he is hosanna to the to the son of david and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, who is he? Who is this? He's, a, he, he's the prophet from Galilee. Well, that would kind of at some level exclude him being a messianic king because the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. And, that, and we see that again and again and again in the Gospels. And, and so here, it, it's, it's not that same ominous sense of their changing their tune on who Jesus is. But at some level, they are. But they're identifying him as the king, but in Jerusalem— who is he? He's the prophet Jesus from Galilee. In Paul's epistle, he's still making the case about all have sinned and, and come short of the glory of God, and nobody gets into the kingdom other than through faith in Christ. And, and that's all by grace. Even the faith to get you there is a gift of God. So that's what this is. Paul's continuing that argument. Yesterday, remember, he had talked about a comparison between Adam and Jesus. And that the grace in Jesus was far greater than the sentence of sinfulness and judgment in Adam. He says, what shall we, because what he said was that with Adam there was one sin. And with Jesus, there's an uncountable number of sins that he overcomes by his sacrifice, by his righteousness that's imputed to us to cover all of those sins. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he's already made the argument that, that, that the more sin there was, the greater grace was. So, so we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So in other words, hey, if you want to know how, how, big, how great grace is, should we go ahead and sin a whole lot more? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And that's exactly what the, the symbolism of baptism should be. And I have to say it as an Anglican, the symbolism is a lot clearer in baptism by immersion than it is in the baptism, uh, the, the methods we tend to use in Anglicanism, which would be pouring or sprinkling. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very different symbolism. And when you're talking about believer's baptism, it's even more true than it is when you pour water on an infant. Um, I'm not going to say any more about that. <laughs> he says, don't you know that we were baptized into his death? And, and that's the symbolism is going down into the waters of baptism, is dying 
of the old self and then coming up out of it is rebirth. He said, we were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And that, that is the entire symbolism of baptism by immersion. You come up out of that water and you're a new creation. The old self has died, the sin self has died, and you're intended to be a new creation in the same way that we, you know, we should imagine a dove coming down and lighting on us because we are now the chosen ones of God. We are in Christ in that way. He said, look, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because he took our sins on the cross and gave us new life in the power of the Holy Spirit by this. He said, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you've been given the Holy Spirit in order to lead you into that new life out of the old life of sin, into the, the new life. And, and it's, he's there as a, not just a comfort, but a strength. If you want to resist sin and temptation, then he's there to help. And that's the whole point, is, is that we, th- this new life is not a life I have to live alone any longer. I don't have to live by my own strength, because I've already proven that was a failure at that. Now, he's given me the, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper, to assist me in walking out this new life. <clears throat> he said, for one who has died has been set free from sin. That's true in an earthly and physical way, right? Because if we have died and we're to consider ourselves as dead, Paul says, then, then we've been set free. We're no longer enslaved to sin. If we've already passed through death, and we did in baptism, then we no longer are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to the Spirit. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. So you don't just believe in the cross. You believe also in the resurrection. You believe that in your life. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God, which is eternal. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And, and that's probably the best short exposition of the way we're to understand the Christian life you'll ever read. Just those 11 verses tell us what the contours of, of our lives are. That we have died to sin. We have died, literally, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're a new creation. You've been given his spirit to lead you and guide you and help you in all things along the way, to stand to temptation, but to also do all things God has prepared for you to walk in. And that's the way we're to live. We have a benefit that Moses and Aaron didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit in us. They could speak you know, to God, but not the way we have access to God through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the same way that Jesus did giving us the power to overcome sin, if that's what we, in fact, want. But the, but the attitude has to be, he is that king. He's not just the prophet Jesus from Galilee. He is the son of David who will always sit on the throne. He is the incarnate son of God. And you were invited into a relationship with him and to share in his eternal inheritance as he shared in your punishment on the cross.